describe our rich memory for episodes? Well, probably the most advanced neural network model of human memory is the model proposed by Randy O'Reilly, a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. O'Reilly's model of the brain combines what he calls slow learning systems and fast learning systems. The slow learning systems are intended to model association cortex. So according to this model, this is where the patterns that underlie durable long-term memories reside, or better said, are recreated. The fast learning system is identified much more directly with the hippocampus. So this system is able to very quickly represent new information uh, and during the process of consolidation it's able to repeatedly represent that information in a manner that essentially trains the slow learning cortical systems. For something to become well integrated into the cortical system it needs to first be represented in the hippocampus maybe even across multiple episodes. So if I ask you what the capital city of Florida is, and assuming that you know the answer is Tallahassee, you are retrieving that information from your cortical system, but the information got into your cortical system thanks to repeated encounters with it in your hippocampus. The system in O'Reilly's model can also work in reverse. If you're recollecting some episodic memory, the relevant information that is stored in the cortical system is loaded into the hippocampal system. There it can be combined with other information to effectively recreate the initial episode. So the hippocampus is critical for episodic type memories and the cortical system is critical for semantic type memories. But of course, episodic memory utilizes information from the semantic system and things get into the semantic system via episodic memory. It's a true network, and that's why network models hold such promise. So O'Reilly's implementation essentially performs the sort of processing that I told you about when I discussed episodic and semantic memory in the mapping memory lecture. This is a realization of the promise of these neural network models, and in this sense, the model is providing a working theory of both the processes and the representations that give rise to memory phenomenon, and it does so in a way that mimics the sort of processes and representations used by the brain. That said, the approach that I've been highlighting in this lecture so far represents an attempt by psychologists to produce a theoretical and computational model. The goal is to produce a model that's sufficiently complex to capture very rich interactions between brain systems, the brain systems that give rise to memory phenomena. In many ways, then, this is still a relatively pure academic pursuit. These models are still just theories for the most part, theories that can make predictions we can test and that advance our understanding of memory systems. However, there are some relevant points one can take away from this. For example, O'Reilly's work on fast versus slow learning systems suggests the following. The fast learning system, the one that underlies episodic memory, it's relatively prone to error. It's fragile. Sometimes that system simply fails to provide an answer to some query. So for example, maybe we're retracing some route to an old friend's house and we get to an intersection. As we look both ways, we simply cannot consciously remember going left or right. Our episodic memory has failed us. What do we do? Well, according to O'Reilly's model, we should literally trust our intuition. What sometimes used to be called woman's intuition or as manly men like to say, we should go with our gut. In O'Reilly's model, 
The gut is the slow learning system. It may have represented our past travels in a way that does not support episodic memory and yet does support a general sense that one direction feels right. When all else fails, we should trust that sense. So if you want just one take-home point to remember from all that's happening in neural network models, you could remember it like this. Use the force, Luke. Lecture 16, Learning from Brain Damage and Amnesias. Welcome back. In this lecture, we're going to leave the research labs for a while, and instead we're going to play doctor. In the last few lectures, I've told you about the links between brain systems and memory, and I've done so in a way that's rather academic. This seems to be here, that seems to be there, and, well, here's how we might try to simulate it all using neural network models. All that is cool, but in this lecture I hope to put a human face on, well, actually rather several human faces on the relation between brain, mind, and all in the context, obviously, of memory. I told you we were going to play doctor, and that's because the field of psychology that we're going to visit is a field called neuropsychology. Neuropsychologists are doctors who treat patients that have suffered from some severe forms of brain injury, and in so doing they get a clearer indication of the link, again, between brain and behavior. For many years psychologists have lesioned, or in some other way, damaged the brains of animals, again in an attempt to understand the relevance of specific brain areas. And while those studies can be informative, they always come with a shadow of doubt. We know that human brains are far more complex than the brains of animals, and it's never clear that what's true of the rat is also true of the human. So how can we be sure? Well, the findings of neuropsychological patients give us one way of doing just that. So let's dive in a little deeper and see what we learn. Let's begin with the famous anecdote of a Swiss doctor named Edward Claparet. Claparet worked in a hospital that included patients suffering from various forms of amnesia. One female patient at that hospital could remember events from her youth just fine, but she could no longer lay down any new memories. Each morning, Claparet would greet her, and each time she would not remember ever meeting him before. One morning, Claparet had a little pin in his hand, and as he shook her hand to say good morning, he intentionally pricked her with the pin. The next day, the patient again did not recognize him, but as he reached out his hand to, to shake her hand, she pulled her hand back. She did not want to shake his hand, although she couldn't say why. Now this example shows the complex behavior patterns that can be seen from patients who have suffered brain damage. One memory system may be damaged, while others are fine. This patient, for example, could retrieve old episodic memories, but she couldn't form new ones. However, she could clearly form some sort of new memory, one that could aid her in avoiding pain, but she did so without any kind of conscious sense of what she was doing. Now at this point in the course, you likely do not find this complexity as surprising, uh, at least not as surprising as you might have earlier. You now know that there are a variety of memory systems and that different systems support us in different ways. So it's not really surprising that damage to the brain might affect some of these systems more than others. So armed with our current knowledge of the brain and how it's linked to memory, Let's see some other patients and put some of these pieces together in the context of real people. 
And so let's return to a character we met a little earlier, the musician and conductor named Clive Waring. Now Clive was a very high-functioning, artistic man until an infection by herpes encephalitis produced a very high fever that essentially cooked the neurons in, well, in several parts of Clive's brain. The two sites of damage that I want to focus on most are damage to his frontal lobes and damage to his hippocampus. And let me also highlight two distinct memory problems that Clive lives with. First, he cannot retrieve any events from his life prior to the fever. And second, he cannot form any new episodic memory for events that occurred after his fever. Often patients have just one or the other of these problems. Clive has both. And that's why Clive is essentially living in the moment for every moment of his life. Clive's two memory problems are separately linked to the damage to his frontal lobes and his hippocampus, respectively. So let's take them one at a time. First, let's address Clive's inability to relive episodes of his life that occurred prior to the fever. Now, this form of amnesia is termed retrograde amnesia. Retro as in old, like retro clothes or retro music. It's likely the case, by the way, that Clive hasn't really lost those memories. Instead, he just likely has trouble retrieving them. They're still there, he just can't get at them. From imaging studies, we know that the frontal lobes play an important role in terms of the initiation of action. His frontal lobe damage likely prevents him from initiating retrieval processes. If you never start a retrieval process, you can never ultimately experience a memory, even if the memory is there. It's just like that mayonnaise hiding behind the pickle jar. It may be there, but if you don't look for it, you won't find it. Can we really conclude all of this simply because brain imaging shows that the frontal lobes are active when people retrieve? Well, there are other results as well that also support that interpretation. For example, you've likely heard of frontal lobotomies, which is literally the severing of connections between the frontal cortex and the rest of the brain. Why did anybody permit such a procedure to be performed on their loved ones? Sounds very extreme. Well, some people with mental disorders become very aggressive. They become aggressive to themselves, and they become aggressive often to anybody who gets close to them. And in the day before widespread use of tranquilizing drugs, the only thing to do with such patients was to literally tie them down 24 hours a day. There were special chairs called restraining chairs for exactly this purpose. So imagine now that this is your family member, and a doctor mentions to you a new procedure. It's a procedure that will make the aggression of your family member disappear altogether. They'll no longer have to be restrained. Sounds pretty good, I would think. Well, a frontal lobotomy does exactly that. Like retrieval, aggression must be initiated. And when the frontal lobe is disconnected, it simply is not. It should not surprise you to learn that the patients who underwent these lobotomies have poor memories, and they often prefer to engage in habitual behavior, things like watching TV or playing card games that they know well or smoking. Those seem to be their favorite pastimes. But of course, they're no longer aggressive, and that was a big plus at that time. Less extreme versions of retrograde amnesia are actually quite common, though they're typically very short-lived. In fact, you or a close loved one may even have suffered from it at some point in your own life. Have you ever been hit very hard on the head? Typically, when somebody suffers a concussion, there's a swelling of the brain, and that includes 
a swelling of the frontal lobes. In those cases, it's quite common that people who suffer from these concussions will initially have little memory of themselves, but then slowly they regain their memories, beginning with those furthest in the past and eventually recovering memories up to the last bit of time just prior to the concussion. Some patients never recover the last few hours prior to the accident, but otherwise their memory is fine. Given this progression, this sort of amnesia is sometimes called temporally graded amnesia. Memory recovery may indeed take some time, and patients can find this time uncomfortable, especially when interacting with those who know them well. Imagine not knowing someone who treats you like a friend or a lover. It could probably be a little odd. But as the patient becomes exposed to retrieval cues, memories are recovered. And often recovered memories then cue the recovery of more memories. And that's what makes retrograde amnesia typically a short-term problem. It's really only in cases like Clive's, where the damage to the frontal lobe is permanent, that it becomes a much more enduring problem. So now let's move on to Clive's second memory problem, his inability to lay down new episodic memory traces. This form of amnesia is called anterior grade amnesia, uh, where anterior is a fancy word for forward. It's a forward acting memory problem, one that prevents the formation of new episodic memories. Clive's anterior grade amnesia is most certainly linked to the damage to his hippocampus, which is a structure we've already discussed at several points in this course. We know that the hippocampus is critical for the transfer of information from working memory to long-term memory, both at the time of encoding and afterwards at the time of consolidation. In fact, we initially learned about the importance of the hippocampus not from Clive, but from another neuropsychological patient studied decades ago. His name was H.M. Now, H.M. is a very special kind of neuropsychology patient because the damage to his brain was performed surgically. And that allows a much clearer understanding of the damage and the behavioral issues that it causes. Now, why would anybody have parts of their brain surgically removed? Well, this is yet another story of the lesser of two evils. You see, HM initially suffered from a very severe form of epilepsy. It was one that resulted in him having upwards of about 10 grand mal seizures a day. So literally, at any moment, HM could experience a seizure that would ultimately result in him dropping to the ground, becoming unconscious, and having his entire body convulsing. Given this, he hated to even leave his home, and he was willing to consider any procedure that might prevent these seizures from happening. Seizures are caused by what we call negative feedback loops in the brain. Uh, a brain area on, say, the left side of the brain sends a signal to a mirrored area on the right, and that signal then is bounced back to the left side, right at that or originating spot. The signal then keeps going back and forth, back and forth, and as it does so, it strengthens, it becomes stronger. So imagine this electrical signal becoming stronger and stronger and stronger as it goes back and forth, and literally, at some point, the brain short circuits. That results in the loss of consciousness. In fact, the convulsions that you see are due to the motor areas in the brain, which we mentioned, that literally control our body. And this electrical activity that is now surging all through the brain is causing random activity in those motor areas, which are then passing that random activity onto the muscles they control. And that results in the spastic muscle movements 
that we kind of think of when we think of an epileptic seizure. So, given all this, the process for preventing such seizures is actually quite straightforward. All one really has to do is remove the brain areas partaking in this negative feedback loop. Now, doctors weren't exactly sure which areas were producing HM seizures, but they suspected the midbrain regions, and so they removed the hippocampus and the amygdala from both the right and the left sides of HM's brain. Again, a very nice, clear, surgical removal of brain tissue. Now, the good news is that the seizures stopped. And this was good news indeed, and we need to stress that. HM could now leave his house and experience the world. The bad news is that just like Clive Waring, HM could no longer lay down any new episodic memories. If you met him, you could have a perfectly good conversation with him, as long as it wasn't about recent events. But the moment you left the room, and the moment he thought about something other than you, you would be completely forgotten. If you walked back into the room, HM would insist that he had no memory of ever meeting you before. This sort of damage, by the way, is really well depicted in the movie Memento, and it's a movie I highly recommend, uh, especially now that you guys all know so much about memory. I think you'll find it very interesting. So clearly, though, a functioning hippocampus is critical to the formation of episodic memories. Uh, and it's important to highlight that while the formation of episodic memories is impaired, many other memory systems are clearly intact. So for example, unlike Clive Waring, HM has no trouble reliving memories that were encoded prior to his surgery. And we assume this is the case because HM's frontal lobes were not affected by the surgery. So while the hippocampus is needed to form new episodic memories, it would be incorrect to view it as the home of episodic memories. Patients with damage to the hippocampus, or even no hippocampus at all, can still experience episodic memories. By the way, both Clive and HM also clearly have a functioning working memory. As I said, you could have a conversation with either Clive or HM. You could ask them questions, and they would try to answer. Now, depending on the question, their memory problems may get in the way. Uh, for example, if you, if you ask them, how high could you reach sitting on a camel? that thing we talked about earlier, well, I expect HM could probably work his way to an answer, because he could rely on past episodic memories. Clive might have trouble, and that would depend on whether he needed information in his episodic or semantic memory. Does he know how tall the camel's back is? If he just sort of knows that, if it's in his semantic memory, then maybe he'll do fine. But if he needs to remember a specific instance of standing beside a camel, he just won't be able to do that. HM still will. So within the confines, though, of the memory problems, both of these gentlemen can think just fine when they're in the moment. Their working memory is intact. As I just implied, their semantic memory system is also intact. With respect to semantic memory, they still know things about the world, and they can show that knowledge either declaratively or non-declaratively. So, for example, if you showed them a toothbrush and asked them what it was, they could tell you. They could also tell you in a sort of non-declarative way by simply brushing their teeth each morning. I mean, clearly they understand the function of a toothbrush if they can use it properly. So now let's talk about procedural memory. Procedural memory is perhaps the most interesting story in the context of these amnesias. First, both Clive and HM clearly retain their procedural memories even after the brain insult. 
Clive, in fact, can still play piano, and he plays it very well. And he can sing, and he can conduct. He can also still read and write. I mentioned to you earlier that he writes in his journal constantly. In a more mundane sense, both Clive and HM also care for themselves. So they know all the procedures that you need to know in, in terms of cleaning and getting dressed and that sort of morning ritual, ritual that we all engage in. But what is perhaps even more interesting is that patients like them, patients suffering from anterior grade amnesia, can also learn new procedural memories. Procedural learning still seems to be intact. Now, one procedural learning task that's been studied in some detail is called mirror line tracing. So imagine the outline of a medium-sized star within the outline of a slightly larger star. Patients are given a pencil, and they are allowed to see a mirror reflection of the star and of their hand with the pencil, but they can't see their hand directly. So they're looking at everything through a mirror reflection. And they are now asked to draw within the lines so that they're tracing between the two stars as they do so. Now, initially this is a very difficult task because one has to learn how to kind of reverse all the directions of your actions because you're seeing everything through a mirror reflection. When healthy participants are given this task, they also find it initially challenging. But with practice, they get better and better. But here's the interesting thing. Amnesics also get better and better. And in fact, they, their improvement is very much similar to the improvement you see with healthy adults. So day after day they improve, while each day insisting that they've never performed this task before. Now, if all this makes you think back to Clapperet and the patient that would no longer shake his hand, bravo, that's exactly what was going on in that example. The patient learned not to reach out her hand after just one experience of being stuck with a pin. She couldn't explain her behavior consciously because she did not recall the episode that shaped it, but shape it it did. So the amnesias then represent problems with episodic memory, but are there also neuropsychological cases that show specific damages to other forms of memory? Well, yes, there are. And the one I want to focus on and spend a bit more time in the next little bit are a pattern of damage that generally go under the term agnosia. The word agnosia means a lack of knowledge. Uh, and those who suffer from it clearly show a disconnect between their ability to see and hear relative to their ability to understand what it is they're seeing or hearing. In his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, the author Oliver Sacks describes one male patient who suffered from a visual form of agnosia. I'll give you an example. That patient was shown a glove, kind of like this. I happen to have one right here. It was just held up for the patient, and the patient was asked what it was they were seeing. Now, the man was not allowed to touch the glove. He could only look at it, and that'll be important, as I'll tell you in a moment. But when he was asked to think aloud at what he was trying, you know, what he thought this was as he looked at it, he would say things like the following. He would say, hmm, well, there seems to be these five pouches. They're different sizes. Um, and he, and he, would, he would look at this and say, what, what could that be? Well, maybe this could be a purse, a purse for coins of different sizes. So you could put bigger coins in the thumb hole, for example, than the other ones, which obviously this patient didn't even view as a thumb hole. He was seeing this as a purse. Okay. Now, when I first read about agnosias, I found them completely fascinating. I mean, this guy can clearly see the glove. He's describing it. In fact, he can see well enough to read small print without any trouble. This patient reads all the time. His problem is not a problem with vision. 
It's a problem of connecting what he's seeing to things he has seen in the past. This is semantic memory, our knowledge of the world, and you know, all of the things that are within it. So somehow this man's perceptual system has become disconnected from his semantic memory. I say it in this way because he has not lost his semantic memory. If we were to tell him it's a glove, he would exclaim, a glove, of course. And also, as I alluded to a little earlier, if you actually let him touch it and hold it, he would recognize it as a glove pretty quickly. If you ask him what gloves are used for, he'll tell you, to keep hands warm. He hasn't lost his knowledge of gloves, but he's lost the access to that knowledge via sight. When I discuss agnosias with my class, there's a demonstration I like to use. It's difficult to give somebody a really clear sense of what it's like to suffer from visual agnosia, but it's quite easy to create the sense of what it would be like to have auditory agnosia. As I'm speaking to you now, your auditory brain, those systems in there, are receiving the sounds, but they almost instantly recode those sounds into words that you know and understand. That latter part again represents your semantic memory, and it's linking the sounds to the meanings. What would it be like if that system was not able to do what it does? Well, listen to the sound clip and notice what you hear. Okay, so you could hear the sounds just fine, right? Your hearing works just as it should. But all you get is the sounds. You can't translate those sounds into meanings. To do that, you would have to learn the language. That is, you would need the semantic memory that allows the translation. This is what it's like to suffer from agnosia. You see things, you hear things, but you just cannot understand what it is that you're seeing or hearing. Okay, I want to take this opportunity to return to a common misconception of memory. It's one I mentioned a little earlier, and that's the tendency to think of memory as a final step of processing. So, for example, in my lecture about transferring information from working memory to episodic memory, the basic scenario was that you encountered some new information, you then worked on encoding it, and if you did everything really well, then it would be transferred to long-term storage, making it feel like that's kind of the last stop. But what the agnosias really show us so clearly is that memory is not just an endpoint. Once memories are created and stored, they literally affect the way we perceive the world. We use our memories to interpret what it is that we see, feel, hear, taste, or smell. Every time we recognize something or someone, it is memory that has allowed that recognition. So memory is as much about forming an experience as it is about holding on to the experience for later. And all of this is especially true of semantic memory. Now, by the way, patients with the sort of agnosia I've been highlighting so far, they tend to have damage to cortical areas that surround the primary cortex of the affected sense. So, for visual agnosia, for example, I mentioned that vision is primarily processed in the occipital lobe, placed right at the very back of the head. Well, the raw visual signals of, of vision 
are processed in the middle of that area. It's a subarea called primary visual cortex. And if you damage that area, you would literally have trouble seeing properly. So before going on, let me highlight what is going on in that primary visual cortex. In 1981, psychologists David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel of Harvard University won the Nobel Prize for demonstrating that neurons in the primary visual cortex act as feature detectors. That is, each neuron fires when some very specific stimulus, some very specific feature, is present in the environment. For example, a single neuron might fire when a line is present at a 60 degree angle at some very specific point in the environment. Other neurons, well, they might respond to different orientations, and still others might respond to colors or movement, that kind of thing. So the primary visual cortex is essentially deconstructing the visual input into raw sensory features. And then these raw features are then reconstructed by the brain by passing these features up to further processing areas that are sensitive to, say, combinations of features. So the visual signal is broken down and then reconstructed as objects located at very specific spatial locations. This reconstructed visual input is then passed on to the area around the primary cortex, an area termed secondary or association cortex. And this is the part that we think is responsible for recognizing what it is we're seeing. Damage to this area leads to these sense-specific agnosias we've been talking about. So to some extent, very basic sensory memories are apparently represented in these brain regions, and each lobe has its own cortex relevant to the kind of stimulation it deals with. Sometimes these agnosias can even be much more domain-specific than just affecting things that we, for example, hear. There's an especially interesting form of agnosia called prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia, it refers to a distinct inability to 